You're listening to the Bible teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know. For he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying, and were afraid to ask him. And when they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly, I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin It would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye them with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Well, the French emperor Napoleon was one of the most powerful men in the world. He had one of the most feared armies, but he said this about the Lord Jesus Christ. Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne, and I have founded empires, but on what did we rest the creation of our genius? Upon force. Jesus Christ founded his empire upon love, and at this hour, millions of men would die for him. What I want to show you today out of Mark chapter 9 is that The kingdom of Christ is different than you would think, and yet it's greater than you could ever imagine. And I'm going to show you three different ways as we walk through this text that the kingdom is different than you think. But first, we've got to lay the foundation because it's a different kind of kingdom because it has a different kind of king. So look at verse 30 where we pick up here. And let me just read to you verses 30 and 31. It says, They went on from there and passed through Galilee, And he did not not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples. 
Now, hold on right there for a second. So just to remind you, big picture of the book of Mark here, Jesus is on the move. In Mark, he's very action-oriented. He's constantly saying, immediately, Jesus went from here to there. He is a king with a mission, and he's calling people into it, saying, follow me. And when a king says, follow me, it's an invitation to allegiance. He's teaching them to be disciples, to be with Jesus, to learn from Jesus, to become like Jesus. And what is he teaching them about? Well, look what it says as it goes on. It says in verse 31, he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And when he is killed after three days, he will rise. So what you have here is Jesus predicts his death once again. Now, this is the second time that he's predicted his death. It's gonna happen three times in chapters eight, nine, and 10. So you need to understand when he does this that, he doesn't just think that they forgot or that maybe they weren't listening or like he needs to review what he already taught them before. He, he's not merely repeating himself. No, each time Jesus predicts his death and his resurrection, he's taking it deeper into their hearts and he's applying it more to their lives. There's this pattern and every time he predicts his death and resurrection, chapter eight, chapter nine, chapter 10, he talks about what it means for him and then he applies it to them as disciples. And so he's working this deeper into their DNA. And this is the heart of it. This is the turning point in the whole book of Mark. I mean, the, the, the first eight chapters are all about Jesus proclaiming the kingdom, demonstrating it in his life and healings and, and forgiveness and miracles. And then the, the latter half of the book of Mark is the cross where he brings the kingdom. But here he shows that this, there's a whole different logic to the kingdom. But again, it all comes back to Christ and that he's a different kind of king. And so he refers to himself as the son of man, which as I'm sure you learned earlier, is a reference to Daniel chapter seven. Daniel seven tells of this, uh, this, this messianic figure, this kingly figure that, is, that comes before the Lord and he has given all authority to rule on behalf of God. This son of man in Daniel seven is really going to bring the kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And Jesus says, I am that son of man. He is the king who is bringing the kingdom of God. But then he says something that would have been unthinkable to the Jews of their day, probably unthinkable to someone who had even been studying Daniel chapter seven because he says, I'm gonna be delivered over and killed. And so what's going on here? Of course, he's referencing what's going to happen when he goes to the cross. And so he's saying, I am the son of man. He is a great king, but he's a different kind of king. He reigns with self-giving love. He's bringing the kingdom, but he's doing so as a suffering servant. You see, the cross is the greatest display of majesty, power, and glory that this world has ever seen. And this is the good news. This is the, the heart of the message of, of Scripture, that Christ, our King, has used all of his royal authority, not to judge us, but to forgive us by grace. But it required his death as a ransom for our sins, as a way of dealing with our guilt and our shame. And that's why the cross is the apex of human history, and that's why it can be the turning point of our lives today. But of course, his prediction didn't end with his death. After three days, he will rise. Amen, church? Amen. Jesus was teaching his disciples in advance. This may look like a defeat, but it's a victory. 
He's saying, I lay my life down, but I will take it up again. And this is the good news of the grace of God in Christ, that through his death and resurrection, that you can be washed clean and made whole. It's the good news that Christ, our king, takes rebels and turns them into sons and daughters and then invites them to his banqueting table. And this is not a message for people who are basically good and need a little help from God. No, this is a message. This is good news for sinners. This is good news of grace for people who have wrecked their own lives or for people who have built a facade of life but who are wrecked on the inside. There is no one, there's no one in general, there is no one here, none of you, who are too far from the grace of God. And so when you think of the cross of Christ, you might, you might look at Christ hanging on the cross and from a worldly perspective, you would think, this is foolishness. It looks like defeat. It looks like he lost. But 1 Corinthians 1 tells us the, cross, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. Because his power is made perfect in weakness. Because he reigns with self-giving love. The cross is the greatest display of, of power controlled by love. And it's all for our good. But they didn't get it. And so in verse 32, it says, they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask them, to ask him. So Jesus goes on and he teaches them, but he teaches them by applying it to them. He's made clear that he's a different kind of king, and now he's making clear that he's inviting them and ushering them into a different kind of kingdom. And so I want to show you three different ways that this kingdom is different than any other kingdom. And the first is this. In this kingdom, greatness is redefined by service. You see this in verses 33 through 37. Let's pick up at, uh, verse 33. It says, And they came to Capernaum, and he went, when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. For on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. Okay, now listen. This is hilarious, okay? If you don't believe that God has a sense of humor, it's time for you to repent, okay? Sackcloth and ashes. This is straight up funny, okay? Think about what happens here. Jesus goes straight from a teaching where he's talking about how the kingdom comes through sacrifice and service, and then the disciples go straight from that to talking about who's the greatest amongst themselves, I mean, you can only imagine what this, this debate might have been like, right? Like Peter is saying, I'm the greatest. I walked on water. Jesus calls me the rock. Like, come on, I am clearly the greatest. And then maybe Andrew speaks up and says, yeah, but come on, you also just, call, or Jesus also called you Satan. Like that kind of disqualifies you, right? And then John steps in. He's like, no, I'm the greatest. I'm the beloved disciple. And they're, they're like arguing over who is the greatest. And then literally in the midst of that, Jesus walks up to him and like, what are you guys talking about? <laughs> oh, uh, nothing, Jesus. Just weather patterns on the Sea of Galilee. Telling the old fishing stories again, Jesus. Don't worry about it. Oh, oh Jesus, it was the Lord's prayer. We promised. We were talking about that, right? But of course, Jesus knew what they were talking about. But what I want you to notice is that he doesn't rebuke them for their pursuit of greatness. 
No, we were, we were made for greatness. That's, it's why you work hard. It's why you strive. It's why you, why you long for greatness. He doesn't rebuke them for their pursuit of greatness. He takes, the, he takes it as an opportunity to teach them about true greatness. In verse 35, it says, he sat down and called the 12. And he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Now, this would have been utterly shocking for them as it is for us. And that's because the logic of the world, both in the first century and in the 21st century, goes something like this. The greater you are, the less you serve. That, that's how our culture thinks. That's how Stockton thinks. That's how most of the world thinks. The greater you are, the less you serve. You could take this a step further and say, the greater you are, uh, the more you're served by others. So the people in our society who are considered great, they have people who serve them their food, they clean their clothes, they clean their house, they drive them around. In our world, it's clear, the greater you are, the less you serve. But Jesus is showing us a different kind of kingdom. And he redefines greatness by serving. He says, the more you serve, the greater you are. And, and think about this. Jesus has already shown it in his own life. He's the king of creation. He sustains the universe. He rules over human history. And he got down on the ground with a towel and washed his disciples' dirty feet. Jesus redefines greatness by serving. He went to the cross as the servant of the Lord who would bear their sins. And what's true of Jesus is to be true of us. The gospel creates a community that defies the social norms of our culture. And we have social norms, right? Like, think about it. If, if you're high up in an organization, the social norm is that you don't associate with the lowly. If you're a CEO, if you're an executive, you, you don't talk to the interns. You don't, you don't hang out with those people. If, if in our, our social norms, if you live in a wealthy neighborhood, you don't hang out with the people in rough areas. We have social norms. If, if you post on Instagram, you post pictures with people who increase your social, social capital. Not the opposite of that, right? Look who I get to hang out with. We have our social norms. But again, the gospel creates a community that defies the social norms of our culture. And so whatever power or influence you've been given, Jesus calls you to use it to serve and bless others that are under you and around you the wealth and the resources that you have are gifts from God to accomplish his purposes. And you will accomplish a thousand, or you will encounter a thousand opportunities this week where you can choose between protecting your own comfort or serving others. I mean, think about, what if all the Christians in Stockton were known for being servants? Can you imagine that in your workplace? You're the one who's going out of your way to help someone else out. In, in the schools and the communities that you're a part of around schools, that you're the ones who are knowing for always helping others out and not looking, uh, looking out for yourself. This is what Christ calls us to. And I want you to notice that Jesus says, if anyone would be great, he must be the servant of all. He clarifies. He doesn't just say you have to be a servant. Because if he did, what would be easy for us to do is say, I'm a servant, I just serve the people I want to serve. Right, we're all good at serving certain people. Oh, you can help me out? Allow me to serve you. Oh, this project is gonna be really good for my career. How can I help? 
right? We're good at serving others when we get something out of it. But here's the thing. If you're serving someone for your own gain, then you're actually only serving yourself. That's not service, it's, nar- it's narcissism. But we are called to serve all. And then we have a beautiful picture of this from Jesus as he illustrates it. Look at verse 36. It says, he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Now, this is a beautiful story, but I think we actually hear it very differently than they would have heard it in the first century. See, in our culture today, we think of children as being innocent and adorable and pure and cute. And this is like cute story where Jesus, like, you know, all strong but gentle, kind of takes the children into his arms. That's true. Like, we're seeing the character of Jesus in this. But their, their culture didn't think of children the way that we think of children. Okay, so listen to a biblical scholar who who studied the first century world his whole life. Here's how he describes it. Mark Strauss says this. While in Western culture, we tend to view children as innocent, vulnerable, gentle, even pure, in first century culture, they were viewed as insignificant and having no social status. Welcoming a little child means breaking social norms, lowering oneself to accept another of lower status, and thereby risking one's own position of power and prestige. So Jesus is defying the social standards by loving and serving those who who would have been considered beneath him and not worth his time. And he's calling us to do the same. So the way of the kingdom overturns social hierarchies because it defines people by their God-given dignity, not their circumstantial needs. For us at Reality LA, we've we've been learning this in a, a very tangible and messy way. Uh, Some of you probably heard that in the last year, we were given a church building in the heart of Los Angeles. I mean, just unbelievable gift from God that's allowing us to put down roots in the city more than we ever could on our own. But even more than just receiving a building, we inherited this incredible food ministry and recovery program. So Monday through Friday at 10 a.m. and 4 p.m., we serve meals to the community. We get about 100 people that come at every meal, and, and when I go over there and, and not only help serve food, but then actually sit down and eat food with these brothers and sisters and get to know them, uh, I, I feel like I see a glimpse of the kingdom of God breaking in right there in the heart of Hollywood. Because when, when, when you look at this group from the outside, you see one thing. But when you see God's perspective, it's very different. You, you think about a bunch of people who are experiencing homelessness or who are coming together in desperation. We always say they come for the food, but they stay for the community. And the world looks at all that group of people and they, de- they see deficiency. We look at it and we see dignity. The world sees poverty. We see the riches of grace. The world sees cracks in the clay. We see the light shining through. We see God at work in all of that because Christ as king gives us a whole different perspective on the world. So Jesus is proclaiming a different kind of kingdom. And so first we learn that uh, in this kingdom, greatness is redefined by service. The second thing we learn about this kingdom is that unity is better than tribalism. Look at verse 38. John said to him, to Jesus, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. Now, why were they so upset by this man? He's doing work in the name of Jesus. There's nothing about the man in particular that seems threatening, but John's words reveal what's going on. He says, we tried to stop him because he was not following us. 
See, what happened here is John's passion for truth had turned into tribalism. He's confused his own crew with the kingdom itself. And look at Jesus' response in verse 39. Jesus said, do not stop him. For no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterwards to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. I would say that tribalism is when your love for your particular community becomes greater than your love for what made you a community in the first place. Right? So you're here because of your love for Jesus and you know his love for you. But when you start loving Reality Church Stockton more than Jesus himself, then then it stops being unity in community and it just turns into tribalism. It's about the way that we do things. And there's only one way of doing things and we've got it figured out. But according to Jesus, there's no room for that. I think today there's there's a, a strong temptation in the Christian world towards tribalism of this is our crew, this is who we hang with, we don't associate with any other, uh, these other types of Christians. And nobody says that explicitly, but usually the aura that comes out of that is we're the only ones who get it. Now listen, I understand how a few generations ago in America that, that you would splinter off of uh, uh, beliefs in minor or secondary issues of theology. And, and when you kind of assume everyone's a Christian, then you, you find your identity more in how you distinct from other Christians. But we don't live in that world anymore. And so we need to understand that what, we have lots of differences with other Christians. You think of all the churches in Stockton, and there's a lot of different ways that you do church that are different and secondary matters that you disagree on. But you need to remember this, that with another Christian, you have far more in common with them than what you have in difference from them. And we need to remember to unite in Christ before and even more than any other ways that we distinguish ourselves from other Christians. Because we are all called under the kingship of Christ together. And so when we are followers of Jesus in his kingdom, there's no place for tribalism. That when we hear of other churches growing, we rejoice and we praise God for them. When we hear of ministries down the street, we partner with them and ask how we can pray and help. We give ourselves away for the city together with others because that's the kind of king that we follow. So Jesus is showing us a different kind of kingdom where greatness is defined by service, where unity is better than tribalism, and then third, where abundance comes through self-denial. You see this in verses 43 through 48, and I won't walk through every verse here, but it's a weighty text. It's a weighty text, talking about hell, talking about cutting off your hand or your foot or gouging out your eye. I mean, putting a millstone around your neck and being thrown into the water. I mean, it's a weighty graphic text. But I want you to notice that within this, it's actually framed positively with entering the kingdom, as it talks about in verse 47, and entering life, as it talks about in verse 45. In other words, let's remember here that God is not a distant, cold deity who just can't wait to punish people and who's made life really hard so that he can rub your nose in it when you mess up. No, no, no. God has sent his son with a vision of the kingdom of God, which is God's renewal of all things under Christ. God reigns, and he reigns through a reconciled people, 
And his reign begins in our hearts, but it will one day extend to the ends of the earth. The vision of the kingdom of God is one of people flourishing under the grace of God, experiencing all that we were made for. Now, of course, that doesn't do away with God's judgment or even minimize that, but it puts it in perspective that God's judgment is the removal of evil within the broader story of the renewal of his creation. And so you have this picture here of the kingdom of God, of God wanting us to experience peace and joy and love and mercy under his reign. But all of that comes in the most unexpected way. Because what we learn through this passage is that abundance does not actually come through self-gratification, but through self-denial. See, we assume if something, if something tastes good, you eat it. If it feels good, you do it. If you have a desire for it, you strive after it. And we assume if I could just get all of those things that I want, then I would be happy. But we see in our culture, we see in our own hearts time and time again that that's not true. And Jesus shows us a better way. Remember that he's saying all of this when he talks about uh, if something causes you to sin, cut it off. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. Remember, he's saying all that within the context of what we heard already in Mark 8, 34, where he said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. This is a, it's not just a counter-cultural message. It, it counters the depths of our fallen hearts that say, mine. Let's say, I want things my way. Let's say, I want control. Let's say, I want what's best. And, and that message, I mean, this is what our culture today has packaged and put a bow on and, and tried to serve to everyone. You, you hear this message over and over again in our world that says, be true to yourself. Express yourself. Find yourself. Help yourself. The key to all of that is self but Jesus says, no, deny yourself and follow me. This is a call to die to self and find true life in Christ. And, and a lot of people think, but it's, it's so much to give up for God. But listen, at, at the most basic level, we believe that Jesus is so good that he's worth giving up everything for. Everything. Money, sex, power. And listen, those things aren't bad in and of themselves. All those things are actually good. But being willing to come before God and say, I surrender all, I give all to you because I recognize that Christ gave all for me. And there's a paradox that's built into all of this. Uh, to put it bluntly, I'll, I'll say it like this. The more you make your life about you, the more miserable you will get. And yet the more you surrender to Christ, the more you will realize who you were made to be. So Jesus says this to us in a, a graphic way. Cut off your hand, cut off your foot, gouge out your eye. Now, clearly Jesus doesn't literally mean that you should cut off your hand or your foot or gouge out your eye, okay? You've already learned in Mark from Jesus that lasting change happens from the inside out and Jesus has confronted the idea of changing your behavior without dealing with the heart. You've seen that, okay? Uh, unfortunately, there was a, a theologian in the early church named Origen. He's a third century church father 
who, who uh, he didn't read this the right way and he castrated himself, okay? Consequences for bad biblical interpretation. Okay, learn how to read your Bible. Jesus isn't telling you to literally cut things off of your body, okay? So, so what's going on here? Well, in scripture, the hand often represents how you accomplish your purposes. The feet are about where you are going and the eyes are about your perspective in life. Jesus is saying that in any area of life, wherever sin sprouts up, you have to sever it at the root. And this is a different way than we think about sin. We, we often think of managing sin. How do I just kind of keep it down so it doesn't show in, in too much of an ugly way? We often make compromises with sin. Uh, I know this is wrong, but it feels right, so I'll just do it a little. I'm not going to yell at this person in anger, so I'll just be passive aggressive. I'm not going to steal this. I would never do that. I'm just going to borrow it for a long time, right? Like we compromise with our sin. But Jesus' point is simple. Don't compromise with sin. Kill it. As the Puritan theologian John Owen once said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. And so let's get really practical with this. If the app is causing you to sin, delete it. If the relationship is causing you to sin, end it. If the job is causing you to sin, quit it. If the environment is causing you to sin, walk out of it. Now listen, all of those things, it's important that you work through those with community, that, that requires wisdom, and that you're not just using that as a cop-out from walking out of a difficult situation. But what we have to know from this is that we have to either hate our sin or we'll, we will be loving it, but just trying not to show how much we love it. That we can't make deals with sin just in the same way that you don't negotiate with a king. We come to Jesus as king and we say, you have all of my life. That I am not going to try to limit King Jesus to some uh, religious compartment or say you get the spiritual aspect of my heart or you get this part of the calendar. No, that we come before Jesus as the king who has given all and we say we give all to you because that's the kind of king he is and that's the kind of king that we have been ransomed into. And so we've seen throughout this passage, and you're seeing it throughout the story of Mark, that Jesus is a different kind of king who's bringing a different kind of kingdom. It's a kingdom where greatness is redefined by service, unity is better than tribalism, and abundance comes through self-denial. But I want you to remember with all of this that the kingdom is a message of God's grace. The, the kingdom of God is not, as many people think of it, this, this human project where we make the world a better place. So to talk about the kingdom of God is talking about us going out and doing all these good things for other people. No, the, the kingdom is not the culmination of our effort. It's God's grace breaking in and transforming us. And then that flowing through us and, and, and drawing us in where we get to participate and this incredible restorative work that God is doing. And so I want you to hear that today as a message of grace to you, that Christ in all of his power and love and mercy and wisdom has pursued you. And no matter what you've done, no matter how far you've run from him, he pursues you with love. He is abundant in his grace.
He is steadfast in his mercy. And so the question that remains then is that if God is gracious, the question that remains is, will you receive or will you resist his grace? Those are the two options. And to receive the grace of God is exactly what faith is. Faith is a posture of surrender that opens its arms in a position of vulnerability, that opens its hands ready to receive. See, our pride wants to take hold. Our pride wants to get ready to fight. Faith is a posture of surrender that's saying, I let go. I let go of control of my own life. I let go of trying to fix myself and I receive from the grace of God. Here's what you need to understand. Our sin is great, but it's not ultimately our sin that separates us from God because Jesus has accomplished what is necessary to reconcile us to God. So it's not ultimately our sin that separates us from God. It's our refusal to receive his grace even after we've sinned. And so I I hope you just have this picture of God overflowing in his grace to you. And the response is to receive it and to let it transform you. I think so often we find excuses not to trust in God. And think, well, God, what about this? Or my situation is different with that. The, The call for you all today is to hear this good news of God's transforming grace in his son, Jesus Christ. But to respond by repenting, by turning from your sin. By by turning from the control you take over your own life and trusting in God. But but we we, we try to think of, or or, or we come up with other ways, even religious, pseudo-spiritual ways that, that put walls up against God. One of those ways is we think, well, if I just had more clarity, then I would then I would follow God, then I would be obedient. I heard a story recently of a a very successful professor and philosopher. And at the end of his career, after you know, writing books and articles that were really successful and having prestige and having the respect of all of his colleagues, after this long career as a professor and philosopher, he felt empty. And he was searching for what to do with his life then. And, and not knowing where to turn, having exhausted every outlet in his life to figure this out, he decided he needed to meet with Mother Teresa. He had heard of Mother Teresa, and, and clearly there was something about her that he must have been drawn to, and he said, I, I just have to go. And so he actually flew to India, went and sought out Mother Teresa. And, and he, from his perspective, he saw this lady who had such clarity for her life and her place in the world. And so when he got the chance to meet with her, she asked him very simply, what can I do for you? And he responded by asking her to pray for him. And, and he said specifically, would you pray that I would have clarity? I need to know what to do. I need to know what to focus on. And, and isn't this the prayer that we've prayed so often? God, if you would just show me this. God, if you would just give me clarity on that. But when he asked Mother Teresa to pray for clarity for him, she replied to him by saying no. I will not pray that for you. And when he asked why, she said, because what you need is trust, not clarity. She said, I never had clarity. I had trust. And I trusted God with my life. And because I trusted him, I was free to give my life away. 
Now, we can identify with that, right? That we, we just want clarity. We, God, if you would just show me what my life will be like in a year, if you would just show me what to do in this situation, if I just had clarity, and God says to us too, you don't need clarity, what you need is trust. You need faith in God. Not because your faith is great, but because your Savior is great. And so I want to call you as individuals and as a church, corporately, together, to look to Christ, our King, who went to the cross in our place, who rose from the grave that we might have new life, and who is still on the move and still saying, follow me. His kingdom is greater than you could imagine. It's different than you would think. Let's pray together. God, we thank you.